Hello, listeners. I am David Blakesley, and this is episode 98 of Criterion Reflections, a podcast in which we are going through all the films related to the Criterion Collection in chronological order of their original release. And this is a pretty significant episode just by the implications of the reputation of the director of this uh, quite notable film, Federico Fellini, and his film from 1972 titled Roma. Uh, Sometimes Fellini Roma or Fellini's Roma is kind of crammed into the title there. Uh, This is the, perhaps in some esteem, the other Roma since uh, Alfonso Cuaron's Roma was a more recent Criterion release. Uh, But this is a pretty significant film in the career of Federico Fellini, one that perhaps is a little bit overlooked. I I don't see it often cited as among his major works, uh, such films like Eight and a Half, La Dolce Vita, uh, Amarcord, uh, or even some of the earlier t- uh, classics like Knights of Cabiria, La Strada. Uh, this one is kind of in that middling tier, second tier perhaps, but I think there's a lot of very interesting stuff going on here. And so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Federico Fellini, uh, kind of in a larger sense, and then we're going to zero in on the film itself. And I'm really happy to have a couple of pretty uh, standby regular guys here that really uh, you know have contributed a lot to this podcast over the fa- past few years so let's go ahead and introduce our guests uh, first we'll start with josh hornbeck josh good morning and thanks for joining us once again thank you thanks for having me on the show it's always a pleasure to be here and it's really fun to talk about a fellini film that i haven't seen uh, this is my first experience with fellini's roma and uh, i'm excited to dig into it with the two Two of you, and uh, this is going to be a fun conversation. Excellent. And uh, also joining me for a second episode in a row is Brad McDermott. Brad, welcome back. Ciao, David. Ciao, Josh. Thanks for having me. Um, this was also, the, like uh, Josh, this is also the first time that I'd seen this film, um, so I can't wait to, to dive into it. Excellent. Okay. Well, yeah. And I, I watched this film, I would say maybe about a year ago or something like that. Maybe less than that. But, uh, you know, prepping for this episode, recognizing that uh, Roma was coming up in my timeline fairly soon. And I've had a couple chances to dig into it this past week. So none of us seem to be deeply immersed in this world that Fellini paints for us. Very curious to hear everybody's reactions to that. Uh, But, you know, let's first start by talking about Federico Fellini. I mean, he is one of that kind of high-level kind of core Criterion Collection directors. You've got your Bergmans, you've got your Kurosawas, you've got your Fellini, you can throw Godard, Ozu, Truffaut, and, and several others into that mix. But, I mean, Fellini really is really close to the pinnacle of the art house film director, auteur, classic, uh, canonical status uh, type of guys. Of course, last year uh, was his centenary, 100 years ago, uh, 1920, Federico Fellini was born. Uh, Josh, you and I were actually on an episode of Stephen Johnson's Cinema Italiano podcast. We talked a little bit about uh, Mm -hmm. our anticipation of the Fellini box set. Uh, Let me just ask both of you guys, do you both own the Fellini box set, the essential Fellini that Criterion released last year? I do. Oh, yes, yeah. of course. Well, I mean, how how can you not <laughs> if you're a, a collector <laughs> and a film lover, right? Absolutely. Yeah, no. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's really one of the most impressive editions. I mean, Criterion, I think, uh, satisfied all of us. I mean, I think we had talked a little bit about, you know, um, in the months in between that podcast and now, you know, some of the titles that 
we might have uh, ideally had in there Fellini's Casanova, City of Women, maybe a few other later career titles that didn't make the cut, but uh, it's still a really impressive and, and wonderful edition. Uh, you know, two books, uh, you know, the oversized packaging, mm-hmm. uh, the, the 4K restorations, all of that. Uh, it is also available as a standalone. In fact, I think it might be the last. Um, individual Fellini film that Criterion released. This yeah. is spine number 848. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so so you can get it without having to splurge on the big box if you're either limited in budget or just uh, you know want to get a certain period of Fellini's films. Roma is a, is individually available. Um, so I don't and I don't know if they're going to release any more of these titles as as standalones. Uh, so we may not be seeing any more uh, Fellini releases from Criterion for the foreseeable future, but I'm really glad that we've got uh, this one available in a couple different versions. And I don't believe it's available on the Criterion channel either. So uh, that, that's kind of an, an interesting anomaly. Oh, it isn't? No. They don't apparently. Yeah. I don't believe it is, no. Uh, so um, there's a commentary track on the Blu-ray, some pretty nice supplements, some deleted scenes. We can get into all of that a little bit later on, but I want to just kind of reel back just a little bit, just talk about some of our impressions of Fellini. Maybe Josh, I'll start, let you get started here. Uh, like I say, we, you and I and, and Stephen talked about um, the, you know, Fellini kind of in a broad sense as we were looking ahead to the likely release of the box set. Uh, have you had a chance to dig into Fellini much uh, since the box set was released or even since we had that conversation in January of 2020? And uh, tell me just a little bit about your, you know, your impressions, your relationship, uh, your regard for Fellini's work. Yeah. You know, Fellini is, is one of those filmmakers that was part of my introduction into art house cinema. Knights of Kiberia in particular was a film that, uh, as I was working my way through Roger Ebert's great films list, that was one of those films that just captivated me and just, uh, stole my heart, honestly. Julietta Messina's performance, the the way that uh, Fellini mixes the the pathos and the humor and the tragedy and you know the the post war European sensibility that you know life is is really difficult but we're going to still kind of carry on. The, it really spoke to me when I was uh, first getting into these films in my twenties uh, and. Uh, so Fellini holds a really special place in my heart, especially those those early films. Uh, so I really, really appreciate what Fellini does, and and I've really appreciated digging into to his later work as well. Um, I haven't started really digging into the box set yet. I'm still slowly with my wife working, uh, we're working our way through the Bergman box set together and uh, mm-hmm. kind of tackling it and savoring it one film at a time. And uh, these box sets have been really fun date nights for us, just kind of taking oh, nice. taking one film at a time and really savoring these, these films and, and sparking great conversations. And so it's been... For us, this this really great way for us as a couple to engage with good art and to engage with it on a really um, curated level as well, and in a really um, systemic way and or a systematic way. And uh, so, Fellini is one that we'll definitely be doing together, I think, as well. And uh, so, yeah, I haven't I haven't really dug in yet. We've just kind of 
perused the packaging, you know, uh, kind of lovingly opened the books and uh, kind of really looked at how Criterion has packaged this really glorious set. Um, and uh, so this was my first time dipping into the set. Uh, I did have the the standalone release, but uh, I anytime I upgrade a disc, I, I have a good friend who is a, a film fan, uh, but doesn't... Uh, collect criterion and so i give him my my uh, films that i have upgraded uh so uh he gets he's the beneficiary of those uh titles that are now in box sets and other things so well that's a really good friend josh you're, you're a good guy yeah, yeah. <laughs> i feel like you know I, yeah. I i'd only get like you know five bucks off for it if i sold it at a used cd store so why not uh share the wealth of criterion love to other people i'm a bit like that too as i upgrade i i donate them to the library Mm -hmm. just to give opportunities um for other people yeah yeah that might not have access to this kind of cinema yeah yeah so i you are both much more noble than me i kind of (laughs) hoard my stuff (laughs) yeah no i i love fellini i i i have a real i have a real soft spot for his stuff and uh uh, his stuff doesn't always work for me but i i still i find his his the things that don't work for me i still find them really intriguing and i find the attempts um just as interesting as the ones that really succeed fantastic all right brad well give us your little pitch on fellini i don't know if i've ever covered a fellini film with you we have covered a few we did uh Satyricon, uh, Jordan Esso and I, and Mito Taha, uh, Jordan's friend, were on that one. And we did uh, an episode on uh, Ciao Federico by Gideon Bachman, who's kind of a noted documentarian and, and writer. Uh, so we have dipped our toes into Fellini, but Brad, this is probably my first conversation with you about the great Federico. So tell me a little bit about your impressions, your relationship with his work, and, and uh, you know, fill us in a little bit. Um, so I, f- I first think that I, I discovered Fellini uh, when I was in school, in college. Um, we, there wasn't a really a lot of discussion of foreign films, but as you had mentioned earlier, the, the big three were Bergman, Fellini, and Kurosawa. So that was, you know, that was what you got. And that kind of kick-started my curiosity um, when I went home. Uh, in between uh, school years, and I went to the library, and this was still back in like VHS days, um, borderline DVD. But I watched Eight and a Half. That was the first one that I had seen uh, on on VHS. Uh, it wasn't in its even proper aspect ratio. Um, so that was sort of the beginning, and and I, I liked it a lot. I had never seen anything like this sort of before. So it, that always kind of comes with a little hesitancy, uncertainty, like someone's uh, telling a story in a new way that you hadn't been exposed before. Um, and and I kind of think this is everyone's relationship with Eight and a Half is like the first time you watch it, you don't really have a clue in the world what's going on. And then the second time you watch it, it becomes yeah. a lot more clear, like what is real, hmm. what is what is his memories and what is his fantasies. And so from there, I would say I went both back and forth through his sort of his extremes of his filmography. I think the next one I saw was Satyricon, which is way on the other side. And and I liked Satyricon a lot when <laughs> yeah. I first watched it. I still love it today. It's, a, you know, it's not a film for everyone, but I, I love rolling with the grotesque. So that's that's totally my wheelhouse. And then I saw um, Lestrada next, which is you know, all the way on the other side. 
So it kind of kept seesawing back and forth. And then I had seen Armacord, which I liked. Um, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. So I do need to refresh my memory just how much I liked it. Um, and then way back, um, if we count his work with Roberto Rossellini, Rome Open City, The Flowers of St. Francis, where he contributed mm-hmm. to the screenplays. So I kind of like, I was oscillating back and forth. But I I'm, I love that you can, can see uh, he's one of the one of the few directors you can see such a, a contrast between the beginning and the end, and it's it's really great to see that sort of map out over the years. But I I love him. Um, I love his circus cinema. I think he kind of invented that and and gave you know cinema a whole new way of expressing itself. Yeah, you know, so Fellini, you know, it does seem like there's been sort of some seesawing about his critical reputation or his uh, popular acclaim. And that really even goes back to some of those kind of latter years of his career. You know, there was this kind of buildup as he kind of came out of Italian neorealism, writing stories that were, you know, based on reality, telling the stories of everyday people, their struggles. You know, Josh kind of captured some of that. And, yeah, films like La Strada, uh, even Ivitaloni, you know, some of those really early films really mm-hmm. uh, have a lot of charm because they they relate on a very human, very communicable level. We, we can, many of us at least, can identify with different characters or see our own struggles, even if it's a society that's distant in us uh, fr- from time and, and, and space and from our own experience. There's something very, very earthy and very uh, relatable, very compassionate, all of that. But, you know, then there was those, those middle years, La Dolce Vita, that kind of launched him into this kind of global superstardom because it was such a a boundary pushing film it was so provocative it was so epic i mean it's a three-hour you know spectacle with just so much stuff i just watched Mm -hmm. it uh, earlier this week just to kind of reacquaint myself with it and it's like that film is really loaded. I mean, there's a few classic scenes that are, you know, the, the the opening of the statue of Jesus flying over Rome and, of course, the Anita Ekberg and the Trevi Fountain and all of that. But there's just so much going on, and uh, it just, you know, kicked his career. He'd already taken home two Oscars for Best uh, Foreign Film for uh, Kiberia and La Strada. Uh, I think, uh, no, La Dolce Vita didn't win an Oscar, but it certainly, you know, launched him to another level. And then he got an Oscar for eight and a half. And then finally his fourth for Amrecord. And I think there was a, I think his fifth Oscar was for sort of a career retrospective. So you know, he's been held in a high esteem mm-hmm. for a very long time. But once he kind of got over that sort of peak, his films became much more self-referential much less based on stories about relatable characters, more about his memories, his impressions, and also his vision. One of the things that really stands out, Brad, you talked about his circus cinema. That really became kind of his shtick, if you will, is putting spectacular scenes on the screen, visionary stuff that requires lots of coordination and planning and many people, extras, huge sets, you know, pretty significant budgets and all of that. Uh, But because cinema was opening up, there was uh, an expansion of boundaries and what was allowed to be shown uh, in all of its vulgarity, all of its grotesquerie, its its explicitness, its candor. 
uh, Fellini seized that opportunity and put things on screen that had never really been seen before and presented them to a mainstream audience of people who, uh, of, of viewers who were, you know, somewhat critically informed, ready to be surprised, sometimes delighted, sometimes repulsed. Um, but as Fellini went further and further out on that limb, uh, his films became a lot less grounded in coherent narratives and um, relatable characters and the kind of things that we often expect to see and experience when we go to a movie that's looking to tell us a story. You know, Fellini went off in some different directions. And with that, I think a uh, certain backlash occurred. Uh, people started considering him to be perhaps a little bit indulgent, a little bit self-absorbed. And I think a film like Roma sort of is open to that type of critique. Maybe we'll get into that once we've kind of completed this portion of our conversation. But, uh, you know, again, maybe as we start looking at, you know, what's that dividing line? We've got the, the early films of the 50s. You've got La Dolce Vita, eight and a half is kind of this pivot point. Then you've got his more kind of flamboyant, visionary works of the 60s, Juliet of the Spirits, Tyrakon. Uh, where even putting the name Fellini into the title of the film itself and casting himself as a character of sorts becomes a really essential part of the whole marketing and the appeal of the film because, oh, what's Fellini going to do next? That, has become, that had become a pretty much, uh, you know, just a, a calling card. That was, that was a big part of the attraction. Some people dig it, some people don't. So as we kind of look at this later portion of Fellini's career, and of course, he still had, you know, a couple decades of work ahead of him before he was finally, you know, had finished his, his oeuvre and all that. But uh, what, do, what do you both have to say about just kind of this latter portion of Fellini's career? Roma could be seen as a little bit of a, a stepping off point into some of the, those later works. So, uh, and I know both of you have just kind of watched this for the first time. So, Josh, give me kind of your little summary sketch on later Fellini. Yeah, you know, I actually kind of feel like you can almost see um, this gradual progression with even with eight and a half as eight and a half starts the the narrative structure starts to get more experimental. You see him building that with eight and a half with Juliet of the Spirits with Satyricon. You see this progression of of. Um, leaning in more towards vignettes, leaning in more towards the the surreal, leaning in towards things that are a little more personal, and I, I think that that those that especially uh, eight and a half and Juliet of the Spirits for me become that kind of tipping point into what the second half of his career will become. Mm -hmm. um, I think those are two films that most people will still consider to be kind of just masterpieces, but they are that, that transition from neorealism into the more experimental phase. Cause I would even say that Satyricon for the narrative structure that it has is still um, it's more, it has more of the excess. It is more experimental in the way it's playing with story structure it feels more like late Fellini than it does early Fellini uh, in so many ways. Absolutely, and, yeah. and I think it's interesting. I think that late Fellini for me is uh, you see a filmmaker experimenting, but I, I think you see this with a lot of these, these filmmakers that came up 
um, through the the 40s and 50s. You see it with Bergman. You see it with Kurosawa. You see it with so many of these these filmmakers that were were used to telling stories in a certain way. And as uh, cinema, as storytelling, as restrictions as all of these things change you see their filmmaking styles begin to change and shift as well in the 60s and 70s and uh, and i think fellini is a part of that uh i don't always connect with with what fellini or with what some of these other filmmakers are doing during that period but i always think it's interesting and i think it's really worth analyzing and discussing what they're doing and i think it's it's worth not just dismissing what they're doing. Cause I think that it's really easy to just dismiss uh, a film because it's an experiment or because it's a, it's, it's playing with structure or playing with form because it isn't as successful as some of their other work. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's, I think his stuff is really interesting in this time period. Yeah. These are kind of fragmentary tales. I mean, Satyricon of course is adapted from an ancient text where we've lost portions that will never be recovered. And the film itself really kind of ends almost like, you know, in the middle of a sentence and just kind of fades yeah. off uh, almost mm-hmm. an homage to its source material. Uh, Brad, tell us a little bit about your kind of take on these later uh, years of Fellini and have you gone much past Amarcord and any of your uh, viewing of his stuff? So I, I mean, I, I agree uh, with Josh um, when he says uh, that filmmaking, some of these filmmakers were changing. Definitely, if we look at, you know, Bergman, a film like Persona was, it was different than what he did before. But I think that degree of change was greater with Fellini than it was with some of the others that you had mentioned. I think what that what that caused it was it reminds me a little of like everybody dumping on Bob Dylan when he went electric mm-hmm. like it kind of a, a betrayal mm-hmm. I think they they might have felt because he goes all the way from the the neo uh, the uh, neo realist roots of Rossellini all the way to you know we as we discussed like wild imagination wild surrealism absurdism body humor all of that um, and that's quite a breadth. Um, and I and I don't know that there's any other filmmaker out there who who went that who ha- gave us that range in his entire run. So for me, when I when I I know there's a lot of people that complain about the indulgences of later period Fellini, but I often wonder is that a, just a hesitation that you don't want to evolve with the director mm-hmm. that you love, and is is it more that you wish that that director would just uh, repeat the things that you loved about them in the first place. If you really liked La Strada a lot and that movie really moved you, um, I can understand why something like Roma or Satyricon or um, Orchestra Rehearsal or The Voice in the Moon would turn you off. So, I, I mean, yeah, I love late period Fellini. I, I, I don't know if I love it more uh, or 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 then earlier period. I just it's a different love mm-hmm. for me. Yeah, yeah. I think you can look at artists like uh, Picasso as another one. That's a good example. Yeah. Something I think is interesting is that I think the roots, the roots though, for what you're describing are still there in those early works that you do see 
the carnivalesque. You do see the body humor. You do see some of those things, even in those early neorealist works. And so I think Fellini was pointing the way, even in that early work, towards what he would eventually evolve to once he was unrestrained and once he had the freedom to kind of go for broke. And so I think that for for people who complain about late Fellini, you just you need to understand that he was, you know, he was there. I mean, he, he, he's pointing the way the whole time. Uh, and, and I, I agree. I think that, um, that you need to, to understand. I mean, even, even films that, uh, things like Knights of Kiberia or La Dolce Vita or La Strada, even they're all very episodic as well. They all have those same, Mm-hmm. the same structures mm-hmm. and the same things that he would eventually employ in the late later films that are a little more experimental and a little uh, less grounded to, to complete and coherent narratives. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I rewatched Evid Loney the other night and uh, earlier this week. And uh, yeah, I was pretty, you know, pretty surprised actually, because I had a certain memory of the film of uh, telling the story of these five young men, kind of these bros that were all growing up in this little town and, going through their own adventures but you know you still see some of that circus cinema you see you know these these kind of celebrations Mm -hmm. those kind of eruptions of activity and theatricality on screen so you're right fellini's been doing this all along and of course you got to remember he started as a cartoonist you know that that was his basic uh you know (laughs) opening gambit when he went from Rimini into rome and started trying to figure out how he's going to make a make it big, make an impression. So cartooning was kind of his thing, which of course the essence of cartooning is, you know, take kind of taking a quick impression of something and making it a little bit comical, a caricature, maybe exaggerating a few elements and tendencies within the subject and then using it as a source for humor and of, of amusement. Uh, Variety lights, his very first, you know, co-directing effort is very much about, show business and uh, artificiality theatricality the spectacular and uh, even though it's kind of in a very you know kind of mundane working class environment uh, what is it that provokes a reaction from people what kind of helps them escape the dreariness mm-hmm. of everyday life a little bit uh, you're right that's been part of his his outlook and his perspective and i think once he got the artistic freedom i mean this is one of the things I love about Roma to maybe start transitioning into this specific film is just what a, what an incredible expression of freedom and an autonomy as an artist. This, this film really is, he has ideas, he has impressions, he has, Maybe they're dreams. Maybe they're things that came up uh, in a counseling session with his, uh, you know, with his uh, therapist or something like that. I don't know where these all came from, but you very much get the sense of a person who's mining his own experience, his memories, his perceptions of what's happening in the world around him. Uh, things that are very sometimes under his control. Sometimes things are very much out of his control, and he's just going to really try to give you this you know, elaborately detailed canvas with all these ideas, with all this visual stuff, with all of these people, these personalities, these faces, these bodies. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really rich work, even though, as I think uh, is said pretty eloquently on one of the commentary, uh, the commentary track on this film is that nothing much really actually <laughs> happens. You know, there's not like a, a narrative progression of, you know, <laughs> dramatic tension and a resolution. And, you know, and so you're not really pulled along in a, in a conventional sense of, 
rooting for a character or rooting against a character. You're just sort of seeing this pageant of life unfolding before you uh, with memories of the past. Uh, sometimes it's the personal past, you know, childhood experiences that Fellini went through as a young person. Sometimes it's the ancient past. Of course, a city like Rome has, you know, millennia of history, you know, seven layers of soil, you know, that they have to ar- you know, archaeologically excavate and dig through just to make sure that they're, you know, staying uh, respectful of, of the past that's preceded them, and even some speculation about where are things going from here? What's the future going to be like? So, uh, you know, I, I I have grown in my admiration because, yeah, I was definitely of the mindset even a few years ago that older Fellini is good and later Fellini is kind of wanky and <laughs> kind of a little bit too absorbed with himself, but I, maybe I'm just, you know, immersing myself in his work or I've been also doing a lot of reading. Fellini was a great interview subject. He had interesting things to say and he was very valuable and, and uh, he, he's filled up books of, of just kind of, you know, observations and witticisms and, and, uh, you know, not always trustworthy explanations, but he, he will definitely give you plenty of opinions and observations uh, if you sit down and, and, and talk with him. So I guess that's probably a good background context as we get into Roma. Uh, but it, yeah, this is a film that's pretty hard to summarize. I mean, you could do sort of a, you know, a checklist of all the different scenes and moments and what happens, but there is no real through line. Uh, maybe you can say it's a little bit of uh, a semi-autobiography. There's a character who kind of functions as a Fellini stand-in. Uh, the movie goes from kind of a you know, little bit of reminiscence of, of his youth in the 1930s, his arrival in Rome as a young adult in his late teens, and uh, and then it just kind of sprawls all over the place, and and uh, especially that first time through, you just have no idea what's coming around the corner at you. So, uh, who'd like to, you know? Uh, I guess we've been kind of going in a Josh Brad order, but I'll just put it up. Who wants to kind of share some of your initial impressions? Uh, yeah, I say I've watched it a few times, so I've got a little bit more perhaps familiarity. But uh, who, who wants to 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 pick it up from there and just kind of share? Uh, how this film uh, created its initial uh, impression on you. There are things that I absolutely love about this film. There are sequences that are just stunning that uh, completely uh, captivated me. There are things and ideas here that I find really lovely and uh, thought provoking uh, and yet there are also things that I found really frustrating about the the film and the way Fellini structures it as well. So for me, it's one that didn't completely connect, but I also find that with some of these late Fellini films, it's going to take me maybe another viewing a few years from now to completely kind of let the film work on me. It's going to take longer. Uh, so I, I also don't always give my first impression uh, complete credence uh, because I know that uh, with many of these types of films, uh, I have to work on it. I have to think about it. I have to, to let it sit. But, but some of the things that really stood out, I think, especially in that opening uh, Remini sequence that I really loved. Uh, I love that that interplay of all of the 
the iconography and the the way that Fellini ties it into fascism and nationalism, the way he uh, explores the way that in his childhood the the iconography and the the myths and the legends of Rome were used by uh, by Mussolini and by the fascist government to help um, perpetuate. Uh, nationalism and fascism throughout the country. So I found some of those things really, really fascinating. Again, there are just some some stunning images throughout the way that the ruins just kind of haunt the landscape in the past and the present, that they link kind of the ancient Rome to the present Rome. There are uh, it, it, again, it's hard to summarize, right? Because there are just so many of these little sequences and... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I still think one of the most stunning sequences for me is that moment when they find the uh, under the 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 house that's buried, and we get a chance to see this this um, mm-hmm. this almost perfectly preserved Roman room, and then to have it kind of almost vanish before our eyes as well uh, is just uh, there's something really beautiful, and and I think that it the the ephemerality of um of some of these experiences i find really uh really lovely as well uh so again i think that there are some things that i just was completely drawn in by uh yeah mm-hmm. okay yeah well, well we'll maybe start picking apart some of the individual sequences but just to kind of give brad a chance what was your kind of first impression and takeaway um i first saw this film a few days ago uh, yeah um uh, on your your you know me signing up for this podcast mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i i loved it i loved it completely um i i don't know like for for me i i love this kind of storytelling um i love it when a filmmaker um does not rely on it on a character to tell its story not that there's anything wrong with stories that do that um, but I find that it can that cinema can achieve sort of a different layer of meaning when it pulls away from from the sort of the crutch of the character that it doesn't have to go through the same you know character arc and and the same beats over and over and over again. It can si- sort of transcend, and um, I think that this film is an example uh, that does that. This this film reminded me of. Uh, Man with the Movie Camera. It reminded me of um, uh, Tati's Playtime. It reminded me of Altman's um, Nashville. Uh, it's a little bit like Kurosawa's Dreams, um, where where it's it, some total of all of its uh, different elements um, point in one direction and give you a, a main character that is a city on mass uh, as opposed to one individual. Roman. Um, and because of that, I, I, I mean, I just loved that he was able to successfully do that. You know, it's pretty audacious that he went into a a pretty significantly budgeted feature film. He had done the clowns, which was kind of a made for TV, uh, sort of semi documentary between Satyricon and, uh, 
and Roma. So it wasn't like he was inactive, but this was kind of his next sort of big screen, major A-list type of project. And yet he didn't cast any notable stars. Uh, Anna Mignani makes an appearance, a very quick little cameo. Uh, Marcello Mastroianni had a scene that was actually deleted. Alberto Sordi also had his little cameo deleted uh, from the final cut, even though those deleted scenes are available as supplements on the disc. So you can see what they were, and I think they, they, they were smart choices to delete them both because they don't really add anything <laughs> constructive. But he really, you know, was, again, marketing himself as Fellini, and he was also pursuing this vision. He wanted to do a, a movie about the city of Rome. Uh, though he was not a native of the city, he had sort of adopted it as his home. And very significantly, you think about this, uh, Fellini never left, Italy. He never, or not to not to make films, anyways. He he stayed within his, you know, his territory there. I mean, even Bergman did an English language movie. It didn't work out very well for him, and so he you know, stay, stuck with his roots. But uh, somebody like Fellini could have easily gone to Hollywood. He could have easily done any number of things because of all the the cachet and the capital that he he had uh, accumulated. But he really wanted to just kind of keep digging into his his roots here. And Rome is, of course, one of the the great cities. It's it's the you know the eternal city. It's the the city on the seven hills. It's the cradle of Western civilization, and as we learned very early on, it's the city where you never have to jerk off. So that's kind of nice too. <laughs> so that's that's kind of um, you know Fellini's angle here is to <laughs> present us with with this city that has had such a huge impact on his own life. And so we've got impressions of Rome uh, from how people dine, you know, this big trattoria scene out in the streets, uh, you know, masses of people just gathering under the sky, just, you know, gulping down huge bowls of pasta and snails and all kinds of other gastronomic delights. Uh, the, the brothels, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the church uh, and, and its, its role in, in Roman life, uh, the archaeology we've already talked a lot about, as well as things that were happening on a more contemporary level. Um, he, it doesn't start off there. It starts off kind of crossing the Rubicon, which I thought was actually quite anticlimactic when I actually saw what the Rubicon was. I, I hope that as the real Rubicon, it looked like a pretty <laughs> pitiful little stream after <laughs> After all these years of of uh, thinking about Caesar marching his armies heroically, it's like, oh gosh, this is just a little a little puddle that they're wading through. There's really not much to it. Brad, I know you've had a chance to visit Rome. Tell us a little bit about uh, your own personal experience there, and uh, and how this film might have triggered some of those memories, and and uh, yeah, just kind of your own connection to it through that angle. Um. Yes. I. I. What I loved about this film is that. It was um, so much of it was about being an outsider coming to Rome. And, uh, you know, as a tourist, I love being a tourist. Um, but as a tourist, that's what I am. I'm not a you know, natural Roman. I'm not inside it the way some of those people who are dining at the Trattoria are or the way Anna Mignani is. I am a tourist. So he every almost every scene um, is with that invitation to come into the world of Rome. 
if you begin with the first part, which is, as you mentioned, the crossing the Rubicon, um, here we are uh, in, in, you know, the sticks. I'm guessing it's Romini because that's where Fellini grew up, but it could be anywhere. It could be me in Canada learning about Rome, you know, the, the slideshow of the She-Wolf mm-hmm. and all of these great buildings. And like you said, the, you know, such an important cradle of civilization and all of that kind of stuff. And um, to be so curious that you want to actually be a part of that. And, and you know, the Trattoria scene, here we have natural Romans feasting. They're in their own element. This is what they do. This is how they do this every single night. But a, a man from the outside, uh, sort of a Fellini representative, though he may or may not be, he could be us, he could be anybody, is welcomed. Come sit with us. Come sit. You should eat this. You should don't eat that. You know, you'd like this at my house when I make it. You wouldn't like it here. All of that kind of stuff. And I, I just kind of felt um, that this film was was talking to me as someone who had, you know, just had this experience with Rome as as an outsider coming in and being embraced. Um, and, and it's great. Again, like I know a lot of this was recreated in is it yeah. Cincinnati, the the film studio? Um, but so much of it is also was there. The Spanish step sequence was there. I was there. I walked up the Spanish step sequence. Um, mm-hmm. That glorious finale. I don't know that we want to get too far ahead with the motorbikes, yeah. but all of that was really done on the streets. And um, to see uh, how he did that scene and all of those monuments um, in such a rapid succession in their movement is uh, is for me how I felt being in Rome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, there's just all this energy, all this humanity, just you know, all these bodies and all this talk and chatter. You know, squawking, crying babies, mischievous children sticking their tongues out and making faces, clamoring for attention. Uh, you know, people arguing, people throwing things at each other, people just really letting it all hang out. Which I think, in some ways, was perhaps a little bit of a spirit of the times. But I think it really just is emblematic of it. Of of a very vivid, uh, very heartfelt and boisterous Italian culture. I don't think Fellini was making this stuff up or exaggerating it, but it's definitely, you know, life lived with a certain pitch of intensity and, and uh, flamboyance. And it's, it is, it's, it's pretty striking. It is the, how we, we want to feel when we come to Rome, you want to, you, nobody really wants the tourist experience. Everybody goes someplace wanting to know, what the locals do and in some ways i feel that this film is is uh replicating that whether again the trattoria scene also when you're when you're at the vaudeville act um Mm -hmm. at the very end when you're in the tresevere neighborhoods you know we're wandering late at night we spent a whole day watching rome we're tired we're just like the romans here they're half passed out you know drinking eating fruit it's late at night you feel amongst them and um mm-hmm. and it's sort of the next best thing i feel to being there yeah i like i like what you say brad about this invitation as an outsider into rome i think that that gives me a, an interesting framework for for the film i don't know that i i quite felt that when i was watching it but i think this gives me something when i do reapproach the film to uh to to reapproach the film uh, from that perspective because i think that 
there there for me i think the thing that kept me at arm's length from it a bit was uh for vignette films or for films with this type of a more episodic structure i think what i often look for less than a, a guiding character or anything like that is some sense of a a structure to how the vignettes or how the how the a thematic structure to how things are laid out and i couldn't quite get my head around that uh, in this film uh, on the first viewing. And so I think uh, that's what it's going to take for me in multiple uh, viewings is to find, find that because uh, it felt a little more chaotic for me uh, on this first viewing. And, uh, and so I think approaching it as a, as an outsider coming into the, the life of Rome might be a, a useful approach. So I appreciate that. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, well, I think, and I think that chaotic energy is actually part of Fellini's design. I, I think he's he's creating that impression yeah. because that's what he sees happening all around him. But with with true chaos, you know, uh, chaos is a, an acquired taste. Let's say, you know, it's going to, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it, it, it it's it's not <laughs> it's not it's not comfortable. It's not. Um, kind of serving the audience i mean he he's he's trying it seems like he's trying to create an impression that isn't just purely for entertainment's sake uh although there are some parts that are funny and immediately kind of amusing and you know impressive uh sometimes it's it's the sheer spectacle or the scale of things uh, like as you said brad you know he fellini built some enormous sets not only the trattoria with a live functioning streetcar <laughs> rolling right through but also the 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 freeway scenes this this huge traffic jam some of it's yes, filmed yeah. on an actual freeway yeah. but a lot of it is a recreated uh studio you know facade of a fully functioning what six lane expressway both directions you know with all kinds of yeah stuff going on you know belching smoke factories there's a, a flaming accident with dead cows in the middle of the freeway and there's a film crew it, it, this is this whole meta thing you're you're watching the movie <laughs> about the film that's being made with with this crew wrapped in plastic on a cherry picker that's rolling down the street while the rain is you know pouring down and people are you know gesticulating and flipping each other off through their windows it's kind of a flashback to the uh, opening uh traffic jam at the beginning of eight and a half and so you know here's Fellini in some ways quoting himself but also taking some of those scenes to that extra dimension or that extra level of of uh, exaggeration and and uh just kind of throwing it right up on the screen uh but you're right it be it, it comes at you so fast and so um sometimes seemingly randomly that it you know your mind is like having to process all of this imagery and all of this noise i mean there are some parts of the movie that are really incredibly loud and i've only watched it, of course at home i would love to see this on a big screen just to get that full sensory experience but you know mm. there's a, a wonderfully engaging nino wrote a soundtrack which uh, i've been listening to kind of while i'm at work and just there's some really great melody lines in here but there there is like pulsing pounding grinding crashing you know thrashing i mean there's there's all of this energy that's just coming out of the film at you and you're right it, it can be a bit of a sensory overload which 
maybe almost as a, a self-defense mechanism. It's like, hold on now, <laughs> let me let me figure out what's happening here. Uh, but before you can really process that, he's already on to the next thing. Yeah, and and I think that you know, whereas you know, I feel like uh, the chaos of his later films is just. I think it's part of of what he does in a lot of his films. Uh, I feel like it is more controlled chaos than something like Satyricon, where I the it's it's serving the the overall narrative function of these vignettes that are strung together. Uh, for here, for me, it just it, I didn't have much to grasp and I didn't have much to to hang on to with some of that. And mm-hmm. so uh, for me, the, the form was harder. There were, were transitions that really worked beautifully for me. There were ways that he, he strung those things together. I'm like, okay, I'm following this. I'm following this transition from uh, one time period to the next really well. Okay. I see what we're doing here thematically. This is great. I'm, I'm getting this. There are sequences that were really, really beautiful. Uh, and then there were other ones that just didn't quite connect with me in this way. And so I think that again, um, approaching it as that, that idea of less, uh, less looking at it as a city portrait and more as in some ways as a city travelogue, uh, in, in kind of walking in as the outsider walking in as the, the thing might be the right approach to take, uh, to see, to see how that, how that changes and shifts my perspective of the film. But I, I like what you say so much of this, it looks like it might be naturalistic at times, but like even that subway station that they is, is all created as well. Uh, I remember reading the criterion essay. They thought mm-hmm. they were going to try to shoot down there, but they couldn't get lights down there. And uh, so all of that is recreated as well. And so there is this scale. Uh, and uh, I mean, there is a spectacle to it all that I find really, really uh, just gorgeous. Uh, the, the variety show, um, some of those sets are just really, really <laughs> yeah. stunning as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The variety show is 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 pretty charming, just because again you're getting to those theatrical roots of just you know, people in the cheap seats. Mm-hmm. You know, they're as much a part of the show as whatever's happening on stage. It seems to me, and <laughs> we we get upset nowadays if somebody's on their cell phone in a movie. Don't <laughs> think about sitting in an audience where there's people throwing <laughs> cats on stage and you know throwing crap on the per- person behind them or, or slapping them in the back of the head if they're making noise i mean <laughs> and it's not just the young bros who are are, are stirring things up it's it's the middle-aged ladies the grandmas <laughs> it's 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 just quite a quite a uh, vibrant <laughs> uh, lively scene but but again uh not necessarily one that i i would perhaps enjoy myself if i was in the theater with people behaving that way around <laughs> me while i'm just sorry why wanting to watch the entertainment up on stage uh, Brad, were there any scenes that you wanted to kind of uh, highlight or, or dig into? Yeah, um, I, the variety scene I, I love because I think, like I, like you had just said, Fellini f- wants the audience to be as much of the performance as what they're seeing on stage, and the the bounce back and forth between them is 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 the whole purpose is what he what what he wants you to enjoy and in some ways again he has his young man you know from outside the city is sitting in the back of this theater watching this whole tableau go on watching the interactions between 
between the acts and and the crowd and i love like when the crowd yell irate things at the like at the tap dancer you just said me and they throw the dead cat and then you know the tap dancer is not taking any of that and he grabs the cat and says oh did you forget your dinner and he throws it back to the audience and then the whole audience claps they're mm-hmm. they love the comeback right they love yeah. the return the insults it's this uh it, it, i think fellini is is trying to show that like the theater in Italy is different. It's more like a tennis match where everybody is just sparring back and forth mm-hmm. and whoever delivers like the best slam gets an applause. And yeah, by the yeah. end of that scene, um, when after the, th- the performance of the, of the three women um, that just everybody loves. Also, there's the interruption of the, the war announcement um, everyone's on the same page. We're no longer mm-hmm. in a tennis match going back and forth between heckles of the audience and trying to impress the, the performers trying to impress. Everybody's having a good time equally. And uh, I think, yeah, that's just it, it's again, uh, this this is Roman life. This is this is the way Italy does this. And come, let me take your hand and I will show you how Romans live. Yeah. No, those, those scenes reminded me quite a bit of when I was in the, my, the punk rock band in San Francisco in the early 80s. Uh, I had no musical talent. I mean, our, our bass and drum player were pretty good, so we could have at least a good beat. But a lot of our show was about, you know, kind of getting defiant with the audience and just kind of that. And that was that was the traction. That was the draw. You know, but then there were, there were some bands who would come out who actually had good ability, you know, talent and, and musicality and all of that. So you would sort of enjoy that because they were really good performers but yeah that whole let's let's see who else is going to get up on stage and show us what they've got i, I really love that that energy and that dynamic um but you're right and then and of course reminder hey we're in a war zone you know bombs are dropping and and uh, and just again so, some some really impressive shots that that one scene of the two people who are running underneath that bridge casting their shadows yes. on the wall and and just the, the body language oh, yeah. I mean, that's just a, a beautiful example of fellini's brilliance as a filmmaker and of course he's got you know cinematographers and, and a great crew working around him but that's the other thing too these are not just kind of wild images that he's kind of just you know throwing stuff at the screen he's a an exceptionally talented filmmaker who can conceive of this massive scale tableau and then execute it with really breathtakingly gorgeous images impressions we've already talked about the music but that whole package is delivered quite impressively you know brad i know i think actually both of you have done filmmaking uh there's a lot to appreciate even on the very technical level here maybe we can just talk a little bit about you know what what jumped out at us from, from from that angle from the production values and the staging of all that stuff uh sure i what i love is um I, the camera's always moving and i f- i i know that it might seem like a simple thing but in a film like this uh where again you don't have a central character it's always uh like the whole city as a character, it's important to uh, keep that energy going um, because uh, that is the best way to uh, communicate that idea that this is a city on mass is to keep showing 
uh, it's to keep moving through the city. Um, and that is also in keeping with Fellini's philosophy of cinema as a circus uh, with acts coming in and coming out. Um, and you're moving from one location to another, from one ring to another. Um, and uh, yeah, and I... I mean, it's he's just a master at this kind of thing, at these enormous set pieces, and you get all of these little snippets through the set piece, and they just flesh out this entire scenario so that you felt you feel like you're actually in the middle of it all. Well, and and bouncing off of that, I think that you get that in uh, microcosm in the first um, the first sequence when the young man. Uh, is introduced to his new apartment where the mm-hmm. the camera just uh, introduces him to I, what, you know, I think in, when I was taking notes while watching it, uh, it felt like a clown car of an apartment <laughs> as yeah, yeah. Uh, people just kept popping out of different rooms. And suddenly we, we you know, th- this, what seemed like a very small apartment just keeps expanding and keeps expanding. And suddenly there are more people and we meet another person that lives there and another person that lives there. And uh, the camera keeps moving and keeps introducing us to new and new people. And we get almost like this, this, uh, this, portrait of the entire city in one room i think that's maybe one of those sequences that just uh, i found really stunning and really beautiful as it uh uh it seemed to be just this this really lovely delightful very funny uh introduction to rome for the the stand-in for fellini um and uh again the camera moves constantly um I think that uh, he finds some really fascinating things. I, I think in addition to that shot that you were talking about, David, of the, the two people um, running through the, the, the tunnel, I think also of the, the shot uh, towards the end while the, the diners are outside of the police in the distance beating oh, yeah. the, um, the yeah. hippies out uh, outside. Uh, and, and, there, so there again. The, you, you see these shadows up on the wall. The the way that the it's kind of contrasted with the uh, the diners in the foreground, and you have these acts of violence in the background. I, and I just think that what what Fellini is doing in uh, just capturing all of that in one shot, I think, is really really clever. Uh, and also, uh, just there's a there's a real skillfulness to those compositions. Yeah, but they're also easy to sort of let sweep over you. And I think, again, you know, I've sort of had to sort of stop myself and say, well, this is really quite an impressive shot. I know you've already talked about the, you know, the kind of the, the, the mm-hmm. trolley going into that uh, subway tunnel where the excavation is happening. But that's a pretty incredible set. And you think about movies made nowadays, well, that would all be yeah. CGI. You know, it'd just be some kind of, you know, green screen thing. But this mm-hmm. is like the the, the scale of, of building and, and construction and labor that went into this is really so enormous. And of course, there's other scenes where he's taking advantage of the architecture that's already there. You know, he's he says on multiple occasions, Rome is the greatest movie set in the world. And I think he's, you know, definitely backing up his talk here with just some of the... Um, you know the the use of the monuments and the you know both the classical buildings that are kind of recognized from postcards and have been used in other movies before but also 
you know, some of those, those hidden areas or, or areas that are just kind of, you know, plain old Rome, but still pretty amazing just to, to sort of see the, um, you know, the, just the variety and the, and the textures uh, of, of this, you know, amazing ancient, uh, but also spectacularly uh, an always modernizing place. You know, I, I definitely would love to have that experience, the opportunity to see that. And then, you know, again, that the, the plunging into Rome's history, the catacombs and, and all of that. Uh, oh, another topic. Let's just talk about some of the, the earthiness, the bodiness of the humor and, and the, you know, the sexuality, the brothels, the, you know, another sort of young man <laughs> kind of coming of age and having his experiences in that sense. Um, you know, just pretty, you know, pretty eye-popping scenes some of them um just the kind of the coarseness and the <laughs> the the sweat and the toil of of this whole uh enterprise that that's being uh conducted here um who, who wants to talk a little bit about you know just sort of you know that angle i mean these are you know not conventionally attractive people you know the kind of models and things but uh that that we might you know typically expect to see in, in, in scenes of uh, this kind of, you know, explicit candor. But, uh, you know, again, this is, this is Fellini's uh, uh, admiration and experience kind of presenting this side of life uh, to an audience that probably at this point is coming there expecting some of those types of moments, but it's still pretty amazing <laughs> for what it is. Uh, who'd like to follow up on that angle? Uh, sh- sure. I'll jump in. Um, I love uh, so the the brothel sequence. Um, it, it's what I love is that it's layered. There's three of them, and in some ways, uh, this this sequence feels very Dante. Um, where I, I mean, it depends on who you ask that which is which. But one of them is Inferno, one of them is Purgatory, and one of them is Paradise. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and and it we go up in you know that we change class levels the very first one uh we are the camera is very very far in the back it's almost like a metropolis type of shot of yeah, the workers yeah, all lined up that same and the camera right behind them and and the women descend in the stairs through the little alcove that we're able to see at the beginning in the second layer we have a more middle class um, and the women come up and down the two uh, portals that we see on either side. There's more intermingling uh, with the men. They're kind of in a you know a square around the women, so it's not uh, they're not the women are not as far away. And in the third one, um, there's less people, and it's it's way more intermingling between the women and the men, and. Um, it's more luxurious. It's the high class uh, joint. The the women descend as if from heaven in this like lavish elevator. Um, there's even a moment where some important client arrives, and we have to yes. shutter all of the the doors so that you know the super rich person who arrives, their identity is kept anonymous uh, anonymous from the 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 semi rich people right. who are already there. Um, <laughs> So uh, it's great because it creates this kind of like, yeah, like this kind of Dante level. Um, Also, the camera, the women are in charge. You had mentioned, you know, these women are not 
the typical model, but like these women think themselves yeah, yeah. as beautiful. They they are sexy to themselves. And Fellini's camera echoes them. All of the camera movements are 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 governed by the women. Where they look, when they move, uh is is completely under their control, not under the men's control, not even under mm-hmm. the madams who run these establishments. It is it is all these sex workers who are in control of these of these scenes. Um, and I love that that Fellini's camera um, illustrates. I don't would you, I don't know if you would call that feminism, but um, definitely women are in charge. And the Fellini's uh, Fellini's camera represents that without having to even say a word about it. So I, I yeah, love that. Well, well, and ahead, and Josh. I th- sorry. Well, and and I think that it, I think that all of this too, it it also shows that these are women who are often doing this out of necessity. You know, we, we get that scene where the stand in uh, finally gets to have this rendezvous with the, the woman he's been pining after. And uh, you know, he, he tries to, to say, well, what, you know, what, what brought you to this and you know, why are you doing this? And well, why don't you, why don't you? Yeah, you he's trying to rescue her. Me? You know, why don't right. we, you meet me outside of this? Yeah, and and you get the sense that she kind of looks at him as a naive. Uh, he doesn't really know the ways you know? of the world, and and, and you know, she's yeah. been around the block a few times, yeah. and she's probably run into guys like him before who think they're going to give her that helping mm-hmm. hand to get up and out of this. It's like, no, this is who I am. This is my life, and I don't really need you to, you know be the, the shining white knight mm-hmm. here to come and, and take me away. Yeah. I think, it, I think these sequences are really, really fascinating. Uh, I don't know that anyone would accuse Fellini of being a feminist, but, uh, but I think that he's honest about what the situation was uh, in Rome at, at the time. I think that's a better word, definitely. Well, and, and he's word. and he is working yeah. within this context of of you know heavy you know, Catholicism, a lot of repression, a lot of guilt, a lot of moralism, a lot of shaming and blaming, and, and all of that, and and often by people who are you know chastising that type of behavior and that kind of commerce while they're also participating in it on the lowdown, you know? So, so it is, yeah. it, he's, he's calling out the hypocrisy, uh, you know, Italian society, mm-hmm. you know, like many traditional European societies has a history of, of, of men in charge of, of chauvinism and, and patriarchy. And yet there's a very powerful undercurrent of matriarchy going on in all of this as well like uh, it's a it's a colossal mm-hmm. level society-wide power struggle in some ways where you know you know both genders are are kind of wrestling it out and, and they each have their sphere of influence and authority and you know, like you say josh fellini is just kind of giving an honest portrayal of of what he's seen what he's experienced and what he understands has been happening not just around him but really for a very very long time uh and yeah that maybe could be our segue from the profane to the sacred <laughs> the uh, the fashion show oh go ahead yeah well, and, yeah yeah well, well and and do we go directly from that scene into the the introduction to the fashion show they're I think they're so. pretty close yeah, yeah. yeah. yes yeah. there's Which, 
there's some which, cutaways out of out of the 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 brothels, and then you see some of the rich villa, mm-hmm. like villa mansions and stuff through the yeah. alleyways, and then we are we are right into to yeah. um, the princess. I so I think this this sequence is probably one of the most successful to me of the entire film, where we have the 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 hippies and we have the voiceover saying, you know, they had free love and we didn't have to pay. They don't have to pay for it. Like we did, you know, and, and going straight from that into then the, the puritanical, Mm -hmm. the hypocrisy of the ecclesial (laughs) fashion show in some ways. And I just find, I find that just a really, really rich stretch of the film that is, is really, really uh, just fantastic. And I find the, this ecclesial fashion show one of the the highlights well, of the film it is, for me. that is what made the cover right that's the or no no actually no the cover is the motorcycles <laughs> it, it's the poster inside which is one of the mm-hmm. kind of neon lit up robes there so again you've you've got incredible yeah. production values in terms of costume design the the whole set you know with all the you mm-hmm. know the clerics in their robes the audience the pomp and pageantry uh the, the costumes themselves and the whole setup of this catwalk with a narrator and an orchestra i mean it, it really is like i can't really <laughs> believe what i'm actually seeing here and it's definitely the kind of thing that's uh, well, worth you know, hitting up on the rewatch i think there's a youtube video clip if you just want to zero in on that scene because it's it's pretty spectacular <laughs> And I love that it takes its time revealing yeah. what it actually is as well, that you don't really know what you're watching for a while. I was like, it, because everything is kind of shrouded in darkness and it looks like maybe they're sitting at a table and they're going to be at a banquet. But then suddenly you realize there's this kind of audience steps that they're sitting on. And then suddenly the lights come up and you realize it's a catwalk <laughs> yeah. and uh, it's, just such delightful reversal right there that I find really, really fun. In in some ways, it's suggested that this is all a vision um, from the princess's mind, uh, that whether what we're seeing or not is is just wish fulfillment on mm. her behalf. But then there are little parts throughout the sequence that kind of betray that idea. Um could I set up this sequence yeah, a, a little yeah, bit, yeah, if, if that's okay? Go, yeah. mm-hmm. so, so, um, so Fellini gives us um, a, a main character throughout this princess. It is, uh, throughout the sequence, it is an aging princess, and she's dressed all in black um, with a veil. And it, it, he begins by uh, a bunch of these portraits of old popes and cardinals being hung up on the wall now this woman would be what was what was called the black aristocracy um so throughout rome's history there had always been wealthy families that rubbed really close shoulders with um the catholic church with the pope and the cardinals and the top brass of the catholic church um the most famous would probably be the Borghese family, and several of these family members became cardinals and became popes. Um, but at the end of the 1800s, uh, the city of Rome was sacked by the Savoys, I believe, the Savoy. And at that time, Pope Pius IX uh, considered himself a shut-in, he, like a, a, a cloistered he considered himself a cloistered pope. He didn't leave the Vatican City for 59 years um, because 
he considered himself not allowed to. And so a lot of these aristocratic families that were so close to the Catholic Church did the same. They all shuttered their uh, villas and mansions, and they got the nickname of being the Black Aristocrats. So um, because during this time, the, the Catholic Church didn't really go anywhere, so the only place that they went was to visit these other families. And so this woman um, is witnessing a time period that has gone past. She's lamenting that this period does no longer exist anymore when these families were so close to the church where you would get visits from the Pope, where you would get visits from the cardinals so often. Um, and so it can be theorized that this fashion show is is her wishing for that day. She obviously um, likes the pageantry of the Catholic Church more than the teachings of Christ <laughs> or any of that. Um, and uh, at the end of the sequence, we're received a vision. Um, this is a Pope Pius the. 12th, I believe, who was uh, the controversial uh, pope during the um, during World War yeah, II. Yeah, the years. Um, kind of... Who famously oscillated. Right. Right. right, right. And he famously oscillated between supporting the Allies and, and supporting the Nazis and the fascists. Mm -hmm. So um, it is quite interesting. And everyone seems to be having this sort of shared vision at the end. This is a pope who has died i believe um because they keep saying come back come back come back um well it's, it's an expected so moment i, I mean I they're they're, they're, they're oh. weeping and they're they're like they're having this kind of almost you know supernatural type of experience as they encounter this vision i mean after all of the mm -hmm. costumes and you know almost the silliness you know priests on roller skates and you know the lace pieces and and, and just all of all, you know the, the the nuns with their kind of flapping um, headgear and, and all of that is it's 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 <laughs> fun and it's kind of wild and crazy but but it it ends in this kind of culmination of this kind of spiritual ecstasy as everybody's just weeping and holding their arms out and it is it's it's this kind of tawdry slightly cheesy beatific vision that they're <laughs> having you know so but 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 the but mm -hmm. the emotion seems you know, pretty genuine and I'm not going to, you know, mock somebody because they're having this, you know, visionary experience and, and it's very meaningful to them on that level, but it is, it's kind of like this weird mixture of, of the, you know, sublime and the ridiculous. Um, and, and yet what it represents, I mean, the, the power and the authority of the Catholic church and these, these high church officials, uh, and that's really interesting backstory that Brad, I didn't really have that same level of awareness that you just described of this kind of close knit, you know, community, if you will. Uh, you know, I think of the Pope and I think of that level of, uh, of the church as this kind of global institution. And yet these are just ordinary people living in a city that happens to be called Rome. And and, mm -hmm. and they've got this connection and all this tradition as, as well as the power, the wealth, the prestige and all of that. And so it really is a pretty awesome um spectacle to, to see it all sort of portrayed like that uh very obvious and very ripe target for satire and and kind of a well-deserved takedown i mean louis spinwell did a whole lot of that type of thing kind of more, more from the spanish catholic uh, uh perspective but 
you know, so yeah, and I, I'm not a Catholic. I don't really have much experience or personal background with it, but it really was quite fascinating just to sort of see this portrayal of, of the church's authority kind of being both lampooned and, and in some ways, I think there's a celebration or a, a I don't know, it's, it's, you know, is respect the right word or just, it's just sort of a recognition that uh, we're dealing with something pretty big and pretty powerful and impressive and important in its own way, even though it can feel a little bit absurd when you sort of step back and take a look at all of this pageantry and pomp. I mean, I I think Fellini has it both ways and that's always Mm -hmm. kind of his genius. He Mm -hmm. is being incredibly satirical here of, of, you know, worshiping the opulence rather than the substance. Mm -hmm. Yet he sympathizes with the princess. He sympathizes with her being the last remnant of a world, of a lifestyle that no longer exists anymore. It kind of reminds me a bit of of Visconti's Mm -hmm. of the Leopard in that way. Um, and he's, uh, he's in her corner. Absolutely. Well, and, and David, I think in some of the links that you sent out, I think, um, one of the things that's brought up is that Fellini was able to satirize and to kind of poke at the Catholic church in a way that other filmmakers like Bunuel wasn't. Uh, there is a the the gentle satire that he has here uh, doesn't quite provoke the same ire that other filmmakers have. Yeah, he's not trying to be blasphemous. Uh, or I think or that he like does that. have that. No, yeah. no, he has that. He has a, a fundamental respect for for the beliefs that these people have, even if he is, as you said, Brad, um, kind of pointing out the fact that that these people are worshiping the opulence rather than than the the object of devotion which which should be god and christ and all of that so yeah i think it's i think it's a really fascinating scene and uh thanks for bringing up also the i hadn't realized uh as much about the pope in this scene as well and i think that also there's there's so much threaded throughout this film about the the ways that uh fascism was just threaded throughout all of the iconography of Rome and the the mythology and the history and the ways that Mussolini used that to try to control um, the general populace. And uh, I think that um, that that those ties with the church uh, are are really important here as well. And the fact that um, Fellini weaves that in here into this scene as well, I think is really important too. I just, just real quick, I love um, that the film begins actually with connecting uh, Mussolini fascist era with Julius yeah. Caesar fascist era, yeah. um, it, which I think is really striking, adding you yeah. know more layers of of levels of oppression on on the Roman people. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then just thinking about Rome's history and you know world culture, its politics, its power, its authority. I mean, it, it had you know I, I said earlier, you know, Rome is the cradle of Western civilization. Uh, uh, for better, for worse. I mean, there's a lot of arguments being made nowadays that Western civilization may not be such a good thing if you're an indigenous person or if you're on the kind of receiving side of all of that flaunting of power and authority, uh, which so often yeah. and frequently resorts to the, the most 
horrible violence and, and atrocities. I mean, Rome certainly has a very bloody past and history. And as Fellini is reminding us, and the posters, you know, the the, the fall of what uh, was it, the fall of Rome, nineteen thirty one to nineteen seventy two, uh, that that history is pretty recent. I mean, Mussolini and the fascists, uh, they they did terrible things. And here's the Catholic Church that is, on the one hand, you know, cozying up to power or enabling power when it's on you know, on the ascendancy from the fascist perspective. And then suddenly, you know, once the, the war has kind of run its course, uh, they, they need to pivot and, and reassert themselves with the, with a new status quo. And, and this is where Fellini is also showing sort of modern Rome, you know, uh, we've, we've, we've touched on the ancient, but now we've got, you know, the, the youth of today, the, the hippies on the Spanish steps. Maybe we should uh, take a moment to talk about that sequence. You know, I know we're kind of skipping around in the order here, but again, it's one of those things where you just sort of see it. You see all these, you know, semi-naked, beautiful young people lounging around, soaking up the sunshine, playing their guitars and their flutes, having a bit of a, a love-in in this uh, spectacular environment. Uh, Brad, you were there. Uh, are the hippies still out there on the Spanish steps these days? <laughs> or what's it like nowadays? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. You know, no, they've um, been replaced by tourists, unfortunately, <laughs> such as well, myself. I, yeah, of course. And I just, I do wonder, like, how regulated that stuff was uh, back then compared to like how it is nowadays, where I'm sure there's security and and all kinds of traffic control stuff. It, you, you get the sense that these landmarks were perhaps a lot more open, although I'm sure the hippie scene was a staged, you know, situation. They they rounded up bunches of extras. I mean, there's some really great um behind the scenes materials on, on the disc some of the uh the Felliniana bonus feature which talks which shows a lot of images of Fellini in the process of creating the film and and uh, you know I can just imagine you know this this day on the Spanish steps or maybe several days you know just to get all of these sequences down had to be quite a thing you know back back in 1971 when this movie was being made here's the great Fellini gathering all these you know hippies these sun worshipers to do their to do their shtick out on this you know uh, spectacular setting as I've already said um, that that must have been a pretty dynamic moment kind of kind of a a, a bee of its own sort um and and there's Fellini the great maestro orchestrating the whole thing and capturing it on film it kind of comes and goes fairly quickly in the film you know it's it's not even one of maybe the more major scenes but it's it's definitely a moment uh what were some of the impressions that either of you guys had about that whole sequence and and what do you think he's trying to say about um Rome of of the modern era uh at that time that he was making this movie well I think it it ties in uh it's you know there are these these sequences with the hippies uh throughout yeah. the film we get these little little nods to them um throughout the modern sequences uh and we'll hear from uh roman citizens talking to the film crew saying uh, that there's nobody left. There's no, there are no real Romans left in Rome. There's just hippies, you know, uh, around and, uh, you know, you don't get any, any of the real Roman character anymore. Uh, you just get people laying around 
uh, playing their guitar. And, mm. uh, and so you, you, we build up to that Roman step sequence through a few of those types of, uh, of interactions with, uh, some of the, the, what feel like person on the street interviews that Fellini does. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get that, that sequence. And, and I do think that it's a, a really fascinating thing because it does then lead into the, the sequence in the brothels. And, and I think that it's, it's this beautiful, again, thematic link that leads us into that next long stretch. And, and so we get the sense of the tension in what's going on in modern day Rome, which then erupts at the end when the police come and start beating the hippies. Right. Um, and then it transitions to this boxing scene after that too. So th- it kind of ends with this yeah. fight, this brawl, you know, this kind of scrappy savage. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I think some of those things are really, I think there's some really interesting ideas that, that were the things that I gravitated more towards in the film uh, that I, I was hoping to see maybe a little bit more of the wrestling with those ideas. But uh, that, that right there, that, that, that tension between what was Rome, what is Rome now and what is it becoming? I think are some of the, the most fertile um, ideas uh, I think uh, that, that Fellini is playing with here. And so I think that the, the hippie stuff is really, really fascinating. there. And I think that uh, Fellini's filmmaking um, reflects that he doesn't give um, any priority to a certain time period in Rome. Um, it's all equal. And modern mm-hmm. Rome is as much Rome to, to Fellini and this film Roma um, as as a Renaissance Rome was, as uh, you know, ancient Rome was. I mean, there's a prehistoric tooth yeah, uh, the tusk, uh, from a right, from yeah. a prehistoric animal. As prehistoric uh-huh, Rome uh-huh. was, yes. Yeah. Um, it is all treated equal, and and there is a. I agree, Josh. There's a running theme uh, through this film about um, the uh, the ideas again from an outsider. I have this view of Rome from history books. And this film, uh, there's one scene in, where in the Borghese villa where there's some some conservative guy. It's the one you mentioned where he's like, there's no real Romans left. And yeah, it's yeah. all just hippies, vagabonds and blah, blah, blah. And those people are the actual Romans. And there's a guy who's actually he's like, what about us workers? He's not talking about us workers. And and that's an extension further like the workers Mm -hmm. the the Mm -hmm. the 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 construction crew that are trying to build the subway they are as much roman as the people that lived in in the villa that they you know dug into in ancient times it is the same place it is it is the same people the the protesters who were arrested the hippies on the spanish steps um this is all a uh, a theme that Fellini presents itself that presents is you know we as an outside come to this city with these ideas of Rome in a in in history books in in that we've been taught in classes, um, but you want to know what the real Roman experience is. This is what it is. It is being down in the dark with the subway crew trying to make a living. That's yeah. that's that's Rome, right? 
Yeah, both excavating and, and in some cases desecrating the past. You know, it's it, it's it's there. You acknowledge it. You yeah. can't ever completely erase it, but you're not you know being especially obsessive or protective of it either. You know, progress has to go on. We've got to build this subway, even if that means the frescoes are going to get ruined when all that modern air, you know, spoils the uh, the pristine quality of their imagery. Well, yeah, and that 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 makes me think that part of that that sequence in particular i think there is this especially outsiders we 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 cling to this idea of the rome of the past mm-hmm. and i would say that that um i wonder if fellini is also thinking that uh romans also cling to whatever rome they grew up in or whatever rome they um they came to first, whether it was Fellini crossing the Rubicon in Rimini or whether it's the, the worker um, remembering the, the Rome of his youth, but there, there, but Rome is an ever evolving city. And, and I think that it, it says something maybe more universal and more fundamental about the fact that if we try to cling to those pa- the past, we end up in this kind of this this room with stale air that that <laughs> yeah, you can't breathe yeah. that, mm-hmm. that 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 well that you, you just have this these kind of beautiful frescoes on the wall but in order for life to come in those frescoes have to fade and you have to let go of that past and you you cannot just cling to what has been um and the 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 ruins are going to still haunt the landscape but you do have to move on and you have to let the motorcycles run through the the streets and you have to allow things to progress. And that's a beautiful segue as we kind of get into the, the final portions of this film. I mean, there's that little, uh, sweet cameo of Anna Magnani. This was the last time she ever appeared on screen. Uh, apparently, it was a very happenstance mm-hmm. type of thing. I think they ran into her while she was just out walking around. Uh, the crew was shooting a scene, and hmm. Federico uh, approached her and says, hey, uh, we've got some some bits. Uh, would you want to be in this? And she's asking, well, who am I going to be with? You know, She wasn't really doing a lot of acting at that time. She had already was dealing with some illness, but uh, she, you know, she was, and Fellini told her, well, you'll be with me. <laughs> so, and, and so even though he's never depicted hmm. with her, she's speaking directly to him in that last little scene where he wants to kind of extend that. And she's like, no, you just go to bed, Federico. <laughs> I don't trust you. Good night. You know, and he, he basically, <laughs> she basically, and, and yeah. shuts the door and really right from there with the, 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 the the film transitions to just some scenes of the silent city. You get the sense that it's after hours now. There's an mm-hmm. alleyway with some trash. There's some lights that have not yet been shut down. But it's very still, very quiet until this these lights emerge, this roar of, of motorcycle engines, and this pretty impressive uh, kind of mob of bikers swarms in and they're not doing anything. I mean, you think about a mob of bikers, are they going to start, you know, busting heads or vandalism? They're, they're, no, they're just, they're having a midnight cruise through this uh, glorious cityscape. And uh, yeah, Alan Rene of all people said he's never seen anything like that in cinema. Now he did a pretty good job of composing some unique cinematic images himself but i think it really is quite a a, a marvelous uh, even though it's somewhat enigmatic conclusion to the film and again you know for you know a lot of viewers you're just watching this movie and all of a sudden this scene kind of comes up out of nowhere uh it's dramatic the shadows cast as the uh, as these monuments are lit up at night 
the the motorcycles roaring around them. Uh, the camera is just nonstop motion. And again, just to get on the technical level, getting all of these shots and, and editing them together just with this great kinetic vivacity is 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 very very impressive uh but it, it it's one of those images and i think you know for both of you guys just having watched it the first time now i i predict that 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 image that impression will will will, will linger with you for quite a while because it's really just it's 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 beyond words it's there's no narrative there's no voiceover it's just the roar of the engines mm-hmm. the, the movement and the light and the and the uh you know, and the monuments that, that you see in the background there, uh, that and that's the end of the film. Uh, what are some of your thoughts on just how Fellini chose to wrap up this uh, Roman travelogue? Uh, oh, um, so I wanted to just jump, before sure. I get into the bikers, just jump yeah. back to Ina Mignani. Um, I love this sequence. Uh, I, I think that there's a lot going on here, even though how brief it is. Um, for one, uh, the film has had this reoccurring hunt for um, uh, the dark-haired yes. yeah, woman, right. and she appears over and over and over on all of its um, levels, of all of its timelines. And Anna Mignani um, is kind of the ultimate dark-haired Roman She's woman. Mama Roma, right? And yeah, exactly. she's that way... Exactly. And I I was just going to say that Um, in Pasolini's film, Mama Roma, um, which is about her relationship with her son, and it kind of mirrors um, not only Mary's relationship with Christ, but also Rome's relationship with itself after the war. She is the embodiment of Rome. That is what Pasolini does with her as a character. She's symbolic of the entire city. So here she is again, symbolic of the entire city in, a, in another kind of meta narrative referencing her film history and also her relationship with Rome in an in a film that also film references film history and it's and Fellini's relationship with Rome. So you you get this sort of feedback meta narrative, and I also like her comment of. Um, that it's not a question she can answer. Um, you mentioned uh, the cut footage of uh, Mastrantonio, Ma- Mastron, uh, Ma- you know him, Marcella Mastrioni. <laughs> yes, that's it. Um, he says something of the same thing, where it's like, Federi, don't ask me this question, right? It's that idea that, like, you, uh, me as an outsider, I want to come to Rome and ask a Roman, what is it like to be in Rome? And a Roman is going to look at me like, why are you asking me this question? Like, it is just something that exists, and that is what they know, and that is what they're used mm. to, and they don't have that same perspective of it being inside it that I do that Federici uh, that um, Fellini has coming from Romini that I do coming from Toronto, Canada into Rome, you know, they just don't have that point of view. So uh, that last scene, I think really cements that idea and why I think it's so brilliant that, that Fellini sort of ends the last bit of dialogue um, on that moment. Um, so the bikes is an incredible sequence. It's breathtaking. Um, I agree with what Renee says. I think what what it what's so great about it is cinema's capacity to be performance art. This is essentially an enormous mm-hmm. piece of performance art happening amongst some of the most historic buildings in the Western world, and Fellini is capturing it on screen in a way that we've never seen before. This is a ballet of the city 
um, it's not just the movement of the bikers themselves in the various squares and, and, and piazzas throughout Rome, but it is the camera rotating all of these amazing buildings to create that ballet of mo just movement, just pure movement of all of these historical uh, uh, buildings that have just so much history in a, of themselves that they're they're moving like like gears in a in a clock right mm -hmm. just the, like ballet yeah like the the movement of ballet dancers um the shadows that get passed around too uh, it's just such an incredible breathtaking pure cinematic sort of moment that he ends it on with such energy and so many layers of things are happening without him being having to be explicit of it that i can just extrapolate the relationship between all of these buildings moving together um myself and what and, and each of us will will come up with our own ideas of what what this means how are we feeling especially those who have you know have been to rome and have seen these things um, how do you how do you feel about it? Each of us will have our own our own uh, feelings about it. Yeah, I, I think what you say, Brad, about performance art really <clears throat> is actually pretty applicable to so much of this film, and even maybe even more broadly, so mm. much of later Fellini. He he's he's presenting us with with sequences, with imagery, with sound, with performance uh, that doesn't necessarily you know punctuate or deliver a particular message he's not trying to engineer a certain sort of response i mean sometimes he is obviously you can tell when he's trying to be funny and body and humorous uh and there's other times of course when he's being more poignant and and uh you know touching on you know kind of emotions of, of various sorts but he he's creating impressions and he's gonna allow each viewer to take you know their experience their history um, you know, maybe challenge some of the notions that we have about Rome. I really like what you said about how Rome occupies the imagination of people like myself who've never been there, you know, and yet Rome mm -hmm. has this, um, not just an ideal, but it, it's all kinds of different ideals. It's about militarism. It's about government. It's about spirituality. It's about culture, art, you know, music, uh, just the, the earthiness of, of just going through life, the, you know, the sexuality, the food, you know, the architecture. I mean, there's just so many, so many aspects to, uh, how Rome has, you know, represented different things different ideas different uh values and concepts uh some of which are very attractive some of which might be even kind of repulsive or, or hideous <laughs> as you think about their you know how they've affected uh, so many lives over so many centuries uh and so this is fellini kind of scooping out a big ladle of his own impressions and experience putting it up there on the screen as as really he and only a very few people are capable of doing and giving us a, an object that we've had a very excellent and very stimulating conversation about and can probably come back and revisit somewhere down the road and have a whole other conversation about things that maybe we haven't even <laughs> touched on yet. So, But I think our time is kind of winding down. So, uh, Josh, any final words or any last sort of, sort of summary statements you want to make about Roma? And then I'll kick it over to Brad before we close her down. Yeah, you know, I think uh, just kind of bouncing off of the, the motorcycles, uh, I think it's also just a fitting way to end the film. Um, that the it it feels like the motorcycles are taking us 
not only through the city and the monuments, but also mm-hmm. out of the yep. city. Um, mm-hmm. It also feels like we're we're just like we we cross the Rubicon at the very beginning, and, and we take that long um, ride on the through the traffic jam on the mm-hmm. expressway to get in, right? Uh, to get in. Uh, now we have this kind of at the end of the day, we have this kind of really exhilarating motorcycle ride out of the city at the end of the day. And, and I think that's, that's a really a beautiful way to, uh, to kind of leave us with some impressions because I think that, that while the film doesn't fully work for me, uh, on this first viewing, I do think that what does work for me are the impressions it leaves the, um, the, some of the images, some of the sequences, uh, Fellini, uh, even when he doesn't work completely for me, leaves me with these impressions that I find really, really uh, riveting. I find really, really breathtaking. I'm left with some ideas that I want to ruminate on. I want to wrestle with. Uh, I want to explore a little bit more. Uh, I want to take my time with. And uh, I, I find that really rewarding. And I often will come back to his films and have a deeper appreciation for what he is doing, what he's attempting to do. Even if the film never completely connects with me, I, I do find that uh, what he is uh, aiming for, what he's attempting to do, I find that the, 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 the product is incredibly... Um, uh, rich and there are so many things to pull out of it and uh, I think that the the impressions just like the impressions of the monuments that we get in that final scene uh, are just really um, really worth taking uh, in this film there's so many uh, just rich sequences and scenes in this film that uh, just taken on their own are worth the price of admission excellent uh, Brad what are your final thoughts on Roma um I want to go back. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. Yeah. Take it where you will. It's no problem. (laughs) Yeah. I want to go back. It it made me feel it it was actually two years. um, This is a strange coincidence. Two years Mm. today Mm. that I landed in Rome. So it's a strange coincidence that you picked today for our podcast to talk about Roma because it was the first day that I visited Roma um, and the very first thing I did was actually stick my hand inside the mouth of truth. Um, <laughs> me and my friend Ron, that was the very first thing. I know uh, Fellini doesn't cover that here, but it is very famously in Roman Holiday. That's right. Um, Audrey yeah. Hepburn uh, sticks her hand in the yeah, mouth of truth. Yeah, Gregory Peck um, actually sticks his hand in and kind of... <laughs> oh, it's well, Gregory Peck that does. they both okay. do, but I, she's a little intimidated. And, and he uh, does the old switcheroo and he screams and pulls his hand up his sleeve <laughs> i actually just watched that last night just as another sort of a, a chance to you know see rome from a you know from william wyler's perspective and it's got it's got some pretty mm-hmm. nice uh cityscape footage there not nearly as impressionistic and it's a pretty charming story uh, a classic in its own right yeah uh, any other any good rome uh, recommendations for uh, rome on film that uh, come to mind um, I, you, the other one is La Dolce Vita. Of course, I, mean, I think yeah. that that's mm, obviously yeah. the next yeah. um, step. Uh, there's the Trevi Fountain is legendary, famous, and you know he uh, he made it more so even before this film, before Roma. 
you know, he made that fountain more famous than it had been in its already famous history. Um, So absolutely. Um, Interesting ones, Laclise, Antonioni's Laclise takes place in Rome, um, which is a strange uh, postmodern version of Rome (laughs) that probably doesn't look a lot like we expect it to, um, kind of in the same way Tati did with Paris in Playtime. Mm Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. Does the uh, Sorrentino's the, the great beauty ahead. is the great beauty set in Rome? I mean, oh yes, yeah. the great beauty I is. Think so yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, the great beauty is a is a really good film. Um, Sorrentino is very. It it feels like La Dolce Vita almost yeah. entirely, but it's made with a love of Fellini. And you know, if you're going to mimic the masters, you know, do it this way. Absolutely, do it with a lot of love. And you yeah. you get the same sort of episodic, wonderful feeling of visiting this place in the great beauty that you did in in Fellini's films about Rome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I will recommend for both of you guys, as well as listeners, if you haven't had a chance to check out the audio commentary by Frank Burke that's on both the uh, standalone and the box set editions of Roma, he really brought a lot of things to the forefront. I, so I, I really recommend that. He he considers Roma, I think, his favorite Fellini film, which I'm not going to necessarily mm-hmm. go that far. But I do have a lot of respect for how Fellini, you know, leveraged his artistic freedom to make a movie that was very personal to him. Um, I believe that, uh, you know, Amarcord, of course, is even probably more personal because it focuses more specifically on that kind of nostalgia for his past, for his youth and all of that. But uh, I, I, I'm growing in my appreciation for the, at least this period of Fellini. I really have not gone much past Amarcord at all. So I've got a lot of learning and exploring to do as we get into the later parts of his career, uh, including all of those films that didn't quite make it into criterion editions i'll probably do episodes on those as well just because uh i'm just so fascinated by this guy so yeah um i think roma is probably going to linger in that secondary tier of of later fellini and and maybe a lot of listeners haven't found their way yet but i i definitely recommend it i think this is a part of uh, fellini's journey that is you know, perhaps doesn't reach the same towering heights of those other earlier classics that we've already referenced. But, uh, you know, he still has a lot of fascinating things to say. And, uh, yeah, this is a film that's going to linger mm-hmm. in my memory. And uh, I'm sure there will be a certain nostalgia and fondness that uh, that will uh, develop as as, uh, as we continue contemplating uh, this vision of uh, one of the, the great cities of the world. So absolutely excellent okay well let's go ahead and just do some catch-ups and check-ins josh it's been a little while since you've been on the show here uh how are things going with you these days uh you know i am uh you know uh, as some listeners know i'm still kind of recovering from uh health issues and concerns uh so uh, i am on a truncated uh, uh recording schedule for criterion channel surfing uh we're doing just kind of a light a lighter episode load so i'll be recording with mark herney uh on monday we're recording this on uh saturday may 8th okay. so i'll be recording a, a light episode on uh, uh monday and we'll be having that out hopefully by the end of the week because it'll be a, a lightly edited episode um, just as I continue to recover and uh, have limited bandwidth for 
uh, all of the, the production stuff that needs to, to go into that. But, um, then I'm also kind of, uh, last year I did my own little at home film festival during my vacation time. And I'm going to do that again. And as I have the energy to, uh, put stuff out about it, I'll kind of share, uh, links about what I'll be watching in case anybody wants to join me for any of those things. And I remember, uh, so, I remember that uh, last year and I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll be doing that at the end of uh, the end of May and beginning of June. And so it'll be a fun, fun way to catch up on some films I haven't seen, and uh, been trying to find some uh, some films uh, that uh, are kind of just a little more kind of in some corners that uh, corners of the streaming services that uh, uh, I've missed that uh, maybe other people have missed as well. Great. Well, I'll definitely look forward to hearing you and Mark uh, have a little conversation about the the cartoon channels may line up and all the new stuff that's coming on and going off and all that. So I really appreciate you yeah. uh, giving us a couple hours of your thought and time uh, for this episode as well, Josh. So good to hear from you again, Yeah, Brad. I know it wasn't that long yeah. ago that you were with us, but uh, any other little updates or blurbs you want to shout out there, stuff you're up to? Um, nothing too different from when I talked to you, I think last week, but, um, our film, uh, my partner and I, Fred, uh, our film, Polly Andrew that we made together, um, is still, uh, making its tour film festival tour, which we're, we're super happy about. And we're so glad that people, um, are resp- responding so positively to it and, and are finding, um, some good laughs and some good joy with it, maybe a little sexiness. Yeah. So it, it, that's been great. It's just been great as we've been here at home, you know, it, locked down because of everything that's been happening this past year and a half. Um, that at least a, a, a film, some a piece of art we created ha- has been able to travel the globe, even if we could not. Yeah. Now, how would a viewer who wants to check that out? access it i mean do you have to go through like the the websites of the various film festivals that have been entered in is there like even a link you could send me that i could put on our show notes even if you had to you know pay a, a purchase or a rental or whatever but uh how can people get a chance to see your work Polly andrew here um probably the best uh bit would be to me for me to send you the, the link absolutely okay um and then there's usually a password um and as long as someone has the password they can view the film so um anybody who wants to see the film sure uh send you a request or if they want to contact me uh directly um sure i'd love to show it to them okay well i'll probably put a link next to your name in the show notes so go to the criterion cast website scroll down where you see links for me josh and brad as far as where you can connect with our social media or other uh, websites and things that we do there and uh yeah give it a look I, i'm kind of curious myself so i will uh, <laughs> take you up on that and, and i'll find a way to check it out soon okay uh, excellent yeah and i do want to thank our listeners for uh your time and attention here um i definitely wanted to give a definitely note of appreciation to those who choose to support us on patreon uh even a dollar or whatever per month if you want to put it into the coffers keeps the website running and just kind of keeps us motivated to keep bringing you these kind of these programs these conversations and a chance to dig deep into the great films that the criterion collection uh, just always puts in front of us so a great company and uh i really appreciate what they do and appreciate the the ability that it gives uh, of us to uh, have a little friendly chatter and and reflection and and um uh, 
just a chance to to deepen our appreciation of these great works of art. So thank you for listening and everybody. Uh, the next episode is going to be episode 99. I'm going to be talking about Buck and the Preacher uh, by Sidney Poitier, starring him and Harry Belafonte and uh, Ruby D uh, as well. Kind of a black Western. It's uh, currently on the Criterion channel. It's going to be going off at the end of May. So we're going to have to get that episode recorded <laughs> and edited and up there pretty soon so that people have a chance to check it out. But if you want to follow along, that will be the next episode. And then we'll uh, come up with episode 100 soon after that. Uh, Brad and Josh, thanks again for your time. And we'll be talking to you all real soon. So thanks for listening. And everybody, bye-bye. Uh, arrivederci. No, ciao. What, what, what's, what's the Italian for goodbye? <laughs> arrivederci. arrivederci. Ciao. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. And a little Nina Rota to send us off there. Bye-bye. Nice. <laughs> <laughs>